This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Amy Edmondson is one of the world's most influential organisational psychologists, a professor at Harvard Business School and an expert on the concept of psychological safety. She joined us to answer a simple, provocative question. What if it's only by learning to fail that we can truly hope to succeed? Her new book, Right Kind of Wrong, doesn't tell us that failure is a problem, but it also doesn't tell us to fail fast, fail often. It tells us to fail well. She joined Hannah McInnes a couple of weeks ago to share more. Can I start by just asking, what perception of failure that society upholds is this book a response to? Very good question. So, uh, on average... Society upholds an idea about failure, and not necessarily consciously all the time, but partly unconsciously, that it's bad, that it's shameful. We have, all of us, I think, an instinctive aversion to failure. We want to succeed, not fail. We want to look good, not bad. And so sometimes we'll just do just about anything not to fail, or at least not to look as if we're failing. Do you think that that is still very much the case? It sort of seems to me that it's changing, that there is a a definitely a narrative that's more encouraging of failure, that understands, you know, fail to succeed is becoming something that people are starting to talk about. Or do you think that that is just something that's a narrative with not much depth to it? Okay, let's get to it, right? Because you're absolutely right. And that is why I wrote the book, because there is much more messaging out there about failure is good, fail fast, you know, succeed sooner. And and of course, these aren't new messages. People as long ago as, as, you know, Thomas Edison or even, you know, thousands of years ago understood that you will often have to fail on the way to success and that very few real successes uh, come about without some failures along the way. So the, the the main thing I'm trying to do with this book is address, maybe sort out the happy talk, you know, from that other deep aversion that we have. So let's say it's 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 both things can be true at the same time, that there's a lot of nice messaging out there about, about failure's value and that failure is good and that failure is sort of part of life and part of success. But then there's also messaging out there that says, I'm sorry, 
Failure is not an option, not in the real world, not where I work, you know, whether that's healthcare or aviation or, or just financial services, people will say things like, well, that's, that's kind of a nice for the Silicon Valley or for, you know, for inventors, but that's not the real world. And so the main point of the book, the main goal of the book is to sort out when and why and how failure is useful, productive, you know, that's right kind of wrong. And when and why and how we can avoid the wrong kind of wrong. So how do we prevent as many preventable failures as possible? And then how do we welcome and embrace and even pursue as many intelligent failures as possible? So we're going to come to that. What is an intelligent failure? What is a basic failure? And what do we do with them? And how do we identify them? But I just wondered who you envisage this book being for. Is this book for everyone? Is this book for business leaders, organizations? No, Hannah, I know it's never the right answer to say this book is for everyone, but this book is for everyone. And in fact, many business leaders or or clinicians or you name it are also parents and or 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 parents of young adults or were young adults themselves, right? So there's a message in this book that is quite universal for thriving in your life, in your work. So I, I think the book can be read by everyone and possibly will will hit you in different ways depending on the lens through which you're reading it. Also, before we sort of drill down into some of the specific uh, definitions of failure, it's interesting to find out where this sort of came from for you, this fascination with failure. <laughs> Well, I think I, um, there's two answers to that, you know, and, and one is that I maybe had an, um, an unhealthy dose of wanting to not fail, right? an unhealthy dose of wanting to get only good marks in school and, you know, to be a success. It wasn't that I had particular ambition for my career, but I just, I wanted to be successful and, and, you know, and do well in school and then, and then find something meaningful to do. So I, I had a I had a strong dose of that allergy to failure that I think many people, often many sort of high achievers, at least at school age, uh, do have. So so it was always one of those things I was I was uncomfortable with failure for a very long time. But from my research interests and 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 as a person interested in organizations and management and how to make both of those better, I came into this field thinking. We need to help people and organizations become more learning oriented because the world keeps frustratingly changing and organizations don't easily change with it. You know, whether those are government organizations or, or, or private sector organizations, we all know that organizational sort of change and learning are hard and, and are, are now easily kind of resisted. So my lens on how do we help managers? How do we help leaders was always through this learning frame, right? How do we help organizations learn? And I think it almost goes without saying that one of the things organizations must learn from are their own mistakes and their own failures. And that too turns out to be harder than than it should be, particularly for the reason that people don't speak up about 
their mistakes and their failures. So oftentimes they're not shared widely enough so that the organization can actually learn its lessons and then go on, go forward and do better next time. That can only happen when people are willing uh, and able to speak up with the truth about what's really happening. So I went into this research you know, many, many years ago, just intrigued by learning, aware that mistakes and failures were part of the learning that needs to happen, um, but not knowing much more than that. And so even all these years later, I'm still studying learning, and but now I'm putting failure center stage. You said that you had a sort of allergy to failure and you, you know, would sort of wanted to work hard and succeed. Do you think that that is something that everybody has innately? Or, I mean, this is probably a question for later, but do you think that yeah. men or women uh, tend hmm. to be more perfectionist and more scared of failure? Do you think there's a gender discrepancy? Well, I I think everybody has, you know, a sort of a natural or, you know, a, a hardwired desire to succeed and be thought well of. And your family upbringing, your community, your schools, maybe your, you know, spiritual communities that you might be a part of, they can send variations on that message that are that are either louder or quieter. So 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 there are differences across people. Now, in terms of gender differences, I think there is research. It's not mine, but there is research that um, suggests that women are, are more likely to suffer from perfectionism than men. Like that there are more cultural messages um, and more way more ways that you need to be perfect or at least you know you need to do need to do well. So I I think that is um, is a real issue. And then in in work environments any group that's underrepresented in in a particular domain, let's say in senior executive ranks, for instance, will rightly feel more visible um, as as a member of a group, not just as an individual, and and thereby have more anxiety about how they may be seen because it can reflect on on their group, not just on them as an individual. Yeah, really interesting. So you might be more prone to fear of failure if you're feeling right. more exposed or you're right. feeling less like you belong i suppose absolutely and 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 you know and let's be clear it's not that fear of failure is weird or bad in any you know it's 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 good to be a little bit afraid of failure so that we work hard and prevent the things that we can prevent the biggest issue with fear of failure is that it the easiest way to manage it is just don't take risks, right? Don't take the hard courses, you know, don't go for the stretch assignments because if you're, if there's a deep fear that failing would be terrible, then it's very natural and likely um, to just uh, play not to lose or to, to set um, less ambitious goals for yourself and maybe for your team as well. And does modern day society make it worse, sort of enhances the social stigma that comes with failing, particularly social media? That is my current conclusion. Yes. Modern day society is taking some old human wiring and socialization and putting it on steroids uh, with with social media. And social media, of course, by, by offering us curated data, curated images, curated messages from other people's apparently perfect lives, um, we are even more, we're even more likely to suffer by comparison. 
you know, it, it, social comparison is nothing new. We've been we've been sort of comparing ourselves to others in the community, to our neighbors, uh, for as long as there have been human beings. And and some of that is motivating, right? Some of that makes us want to, uh, you know, be good people and and do our part for the community so that others will think le- think well of us. Um, but social comparison with social media is a distorted and by and large unhealthy environment for for human beings to to navigate. I was really interested by your comments when you talk about that. You say the real failure is believing others will like us more if we are failure-free. Yeah. Again, I think something that people are starting to come around to. I think that's right. And it's, you know, think about a friendship that you that you have or, you know, a friend that you've made either long ago or recently. I think you you convert from sort of an acquaintance, someone you, you like and, and maybe enjoy hanging out with, to a true friend once you're vulnerable with each other. You know, once once one of you sort of admits something that is, you know, anxiety provoking or imperfect or, um, you know, that you're really worried about, then suddenly there's this sort of instant real connection, a genuine connection that, that's that's based on authenticity that just wasn't there before when, when we're still trying to, you know, look good and, and, and come across as as a worthy person to be your friend. But as soon as we become authentic, vulnerable, honest, then in fact, we end up liking each other more, not less. So is that something you actively think should be encouraged in the workplace and everywhere, really? But, you know, but I suppose specifically yeah. in the workplace, because you're already talking about it as something as a basis of friendship and probably family relationships. But that mm-hmm. vulnerability is something that could bring a lot to the workplace. Yes, and not just because it's nice. I mean, it's it's rewarding, and also makes me happier to go to work when I have actual friends at work. You know, when I have when I have people that I can be with at work and be myself and be authentic with, um, it's just a more engaging, inspiring place to be. But beyond just that, it's about the nature of the work today for most of us is uncertain, interdependent, complex. And we will do better work when we're more honest and open about what's really happening. And so if I'm more able to speak truthfully to you about, I'm falling behind on this, I'm not quite sure where to go with it, or hey, I need help on this, or I think you're making a mistake on that. Right? If we're able to do that more, more easily, more naturally, then we will do better work uh, together. So maybe my my first interest in this is based on the quality of the work, whether that work is financial services or patient care or automotive manufacturing. Our honesty with each other makes for higher quality work outputs. Right kind of wrong is the title. And you mentioned intelligent failure, basic failure. So is your premise that some types of failure are right and some types of failure are wrong and that we should only be failing in a certain way or that we have to fail in all ways. I don't want to imply a moral judgment, right? Again, sometimes the words right and wrong might imply that. So so let me try to be clear when I when I'm talking about right kind of wrong or intelligent failure. The the good kinds of failure are the ones that are are valuable. They're useful. They and they're useful because they bring us new information that we simply couldn't have gotten any other way. And the not so good kinds of failure are 
you know, at, at worst, tragic, and at best, wasteful, right? If, if I have a failure that could have been avoided if I just used a checklist, for example, and that I lost some time, or maybe I lost a little bit of money, or I lost, you know, I lost uh, something as a result, hopefully nothing catastrophic, then that's a waste, right? That's something I could have avoided and I would have been happier and you would have been happier. You know, there, were, there was no real value that came from um, that failure. So an intelligent failure, let's go back to that and then we can come back to the basic failures sure. again. You know, you briefly alluded to it, but in the book, you quite specifically describe what and when a failure is intelligent, so I'll define an intelligent failure as the undesired result of a thoughtful foray into new territory. The four criteria that I offer in the book are it's in new territory, right? So you couldn't just look it up, get the answer, and easily put that in, into practice. It's in pursuit of a goal, whether that goal is, you know, a, a great new product for your company or, you know, a life partner or you know, joining an ice hockey team. It's in pursuit of a goal. It is informed by prior knowledge. You've done as much as you can to find out what's what's known here, what's possible here. And then finally, is it's as small as possible. It, it's, it's no bigger, the failure is no bigger than it has to be to get you that next step forward, to get you the, the new knowledge that you need. So scientific experiments in laboratories, in universities or companies, are all about intelligent failure. Of course, they have some successes too, but that's where the the model is, you know, quintessentially a, a good fit, right? It's it's in pursuit of a goal, you know, new territory. You've done your homework, you've got a hypothesis, and you don't waste more time, resources than you need to uh, to get the new knowledge. So, so if a failure hits all four of those criteria then we can call it intelligent and it brings us something new now i'm describing it and i you, you know i talk mostly about failures that are really new to the world but let's say we're just talking about a, you know failures that are new to you like like you decide to pick up the game of golf right i i can almost guarantee that your first contact between the the club and the ball will not be pretty, right? It will, it'll be a, a failure in a, it'll be a basic failure in a technical sense. But, but for you, it's, there's no way to get good at golf without trying, right? Without, without being willing to have lots and lots of failures along the way. Every little child who learns to walk or learns to ride a bicycle um, experiences many failures before they're able to master that new activity. And each of those are intelligent failures because those are new territory for them. You know, they're they're prepared and ready. They've done. They've asked someone, "How do you hold this club?" Right, and and you just you do as much as you can to increase the chances of success, but you can't produce success every time. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You talk about a lot about sort of scientists and innovators, creators, um, when you're talking about intelligent failure. But th- yeah, those examples you've just given 
um, children. You talk also about sort of finding a date as well. But does intelligent failure, to look at what it is in essence, do you look to the, what do you call them? Elite failure practitioners. What do they show us to learn from? Yeah, so elite, I, I, when I first, I, I coined that phrase in my head just as a, almost a joke, right? And then I thought, no, it's pretty good. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to run with it for a little bit. And, and they are the people, you know, the inventors, the scientists, the Olympic athletes, right? They're the people really at the leading edge of their craft and, and that, you know, others would recognize them as well as, as at the leading edge of, of some domain. And they are the people who have, figured out a way to be okay with their failures, right? Or they wouldn't succeed so brilliantly in, in their careers or their, their work. So um, what do they have in common? Well, you know, they tend to be quite driven. They tend to be unusually curious. They're the, I wonder what would happen if, right? There are people who are just driven to kind of turn around that next corner just to see what's there. They, they can't, they almost can't help themselves or they've trained themselves uh, to be that way. They're resilient because it is the case that they have had more failures than the rest of us. Even though they're so successful, they've only gotten there by having more more failures, more more setbacks than those of us who've stayed in sort of safer territory. So I thought, what can we, you know, what can we learn from those more extreme examples of you know of, of very successful people, especially on leading edge of of um, various domains. And I realized, well, they're curious, they're they're driven, they're resilient. They are ambitious, but they don't take themselves overly seriously. Right? They're, when they stumble, they don't try to cover it up and pretend it didn't happen. Also, they use failure experimentally to learn. So particularly in science, that, that failure or those who seem to be those that we would emulate or you know, seek to be like are the ones who take the failure and they don't walk away and try and brush it under the carpet. They dwell on it and they react to it and they use it to enhance their lives or to come up with, you know, in science again and again, it's the failure that eventually leads to something, something wonderful. The eureka moment that you describe. Exactly right. No, they and 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 not just for themselves, but if they're a scientist nowadays, if you're a scientist, you're you're not um, Pasteur alone in his lab. You're you're in a you know in a busy, thriving community of other scientists. And and one of the things they do quite well is that they share their failures with each other because they understand the value of others doing that with them, and thereby precluding an intelligent failure happening a second time. Because if I if I'm a scientist and I have this big failure and this big learning and I do as you say dwell on it and I learn everything I can from it, that's great. But if I can share it with others, then we the community will learn from it and ultimately use our resources collectively more wisely and make discoveries that are useful to the world more quickly. And and for smaller failures that aren't in a research lab, the same applies. I think it does. I mean, think about the usefulness and the pleasure you get from learning that someone else has, you know, had a failure, had a mistake, and they tell you about it, and you think, oh, "Wow, it's great to hear that." And you, you know, you you resolve not to do the same thing. I mean, it's it's one of the it's one of the gifts we can give each other um, is to share our failures, particularly to to help others avoid the same ones. Absolutely. Uh, so, basic failures. 
the suggestion is, I may have got this wrong, basic failures aren't great. We don't really want to fail right. in a basic way. Right. So why do you want to include them? What is it that we huh. learn from them? Well, first of all, I want to include them as a foil, right? So that, that we have a, a deeper appreciation for the actual value of intelligent failures, because when we juxtapose them with basic failures and what I'll call complex failures, it becomes easier to see why the intelligent ones truly are different, why they're why they're useful in our lives and in our workplaces. Right? But also I include them because I think part of the science of this is learning the best practices for avoiding the avoidable failures, right? For for avoiding preventable failures. And so basic failures are defined as failures, failures with a single cause, right? You just make one sort of mistake, you substitute sugar for salt in the recipe, and you know, the cookies turn out uh, or the biscuits turn out to be inedible. Right? So that's a that's a failure, albeit a small one. But it's not necessary um, to do that, right? It's by following the recipe, by staying awake, by not texting as you drive, you know, you can prevent many uh, preventable basic failures. So I, I thought it would be useful to put all in one place, not only the practices to help us get comfortable with the discoveries and advances that come from intelligent failures, but also to be reassured that by following best practices in familiar territory, we don't have to suffer the indignity of basic failures. I'm not saying that when they happen, you should be ashamed. We're all human. We're all fallible. We all, you know, we'll we'll all have basic failures in our lives. But there's certain basic failures we very much want to avoid. Again, because they're they're they range from wasteful to downright devastating. So I mean. Is it just being aware of them that enables us to avoid them or is it, you know? No, no, it's, I mean, some of it's just being aware of them, but but more, more precisely, basic failures are best avoided by a handful of practices, um, you know, in companies. It's things like basic training, basic safety training, right? You would, you, when you onboard a new employee, you, if it's in a dangerous setting, you give them safety training. If it's um, just a, um, a process or a set of activities that they're supposed to um, execute effectively in their role, you make sure they're trained in them to avoid obvious basic failures of screwing up a customer's account because they didn't get the training they needed. So I know this sounds very basic, but there's sort of foundational practices that help us do that which we know how to do well. Training practice, you know, checklists, being awake, uh, teamwork, right? Because you might, I might see you about to make a mistake and I, I'm noticing it so I can say, hey, Hannah, you know, and then you and I together have just avoided a preventable uh, failure. So mundane, this is very mundane stuff, but as you know, it's often missed. Yes. And it leads to some seriously important, and as you said, sometimes catastrophic uh, failures, which you talk about many examples in the book, but actually, I can't. We've got this far without mentioning uh, one of the things which you are highly renowned yeah. for, which is, of course, uh, psychological safety. And uh, I wonder if you could just at this point explain that because that weaves its way through the whole book as being one of the most important ways to avoid failure, both basic and intelligent. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, so psychological safety describes an environment where you really believe you can speak up, 
you know, with maybe somewhat challenging or interpersonally risky things like pointing out someone else's mistake, like I was describing before, or asking for help when you don't know what to do. That can be very hard for people interpersonally at work. And people worry very much what, especially what, you know, their their boss thinks or the people above them in the, in the organization's hierarchy thinks. So psychological safety describes a work environment where you honestly believe you can take the interpersonal risks of speaking up, right? Asking for help, pointing out a mistake and so on. And, and this is, um, this is the kind of climate, you know, that the learning organizations, that excellent organizations in any industry try to build so as to avoid basic failures. There's nothing for me more heartbreaking than say your NHS when a patient is harmed in the process of receiving you know, care uh, because someone made a mistake that could have been avoided had someone else spoken up in a timely way, right? And so, uh, and that happens in, in, in every industry setting you can think of. So psychological safety becomes, I don't wanna call it a tool because it's not a tool. It describes an environment where certain behaviors are just easier to engage in than they would otherwise be. There are things that that everyone can do to build more psychological safety in organizations, but you can recognize this, I think, clearly as the kind of environment you need to operate safely where, where there's risk or to operate in a really learning-oriented, more innovative way when you're trying to be innovative because you just are less worried about risk-taking. I mean, you can also uh, encourage psychological safety within the family, in all environments. Can you give maybe some ideas of how, if people are listening to, you know, if they're in a position of being able to encourage that, and it doesn't just have to be leaders, does it? It can be someone in an office who is familiar with the concept, who can try and create that kind of a culture. Absolutely. So, I mean, and and you mentioned families, and it's true. I think, you know, in 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 families with a sort of healthy learning oriented uh, culture, if you will, they're well aware that the risk of the kids being afraid to tell their parents the truth, maybe about something that's going on at school or something that might be happening in their uh, social circle is a much bigger risk than if, if the kids felt absolutely able to you know, to speak up early and often when they need help. If they need a ride home, there's something happening at a party and they're teenagers um, that doesn't feel right to them. They need a ride home, no questions asked. Or they need to have someone to call where they know they won't get yelled at. Oh, I told you not to go to that kind of party again. It's got to be what I call blameless reporting. Um, that's true in families. That's true in, in, in work environments. We must not shoot the messengers. We need to do everything we can to encourage people to be open and honest and quick with what they see, what they need, you know, so that we can get on to doing what we need to do, whether it's to, to keep people safe or to learn, to grow and to achieve our goals. I mean, because we do have, don't we, a sort of a blame culture, which doesn't help when it comes to uh, accepting failure. So, you know, we largely like to blame ourselves for everything and also we often you know need a scapegoat and you know you cite lots of examples in the book of individuals who've been blamed where perhaps it wasn't fair to do so how do we kind of try and move away from that because that seems to me to be something very ingrained I love the way you said that yes we do have a blame culture and we meaning like 
culturally, society. We have a blame culture. And I think you're absolutely right that the, one of the ways that manifests is in finger pointing. And it can be finger pointing. I mean, many people have a very quick, you know, almost knee-jerk response. If something goes wrong, with someone else. Like he did it, she did it, right? That, but but other people have that kind of over-responsible and they they erroneously blame themselves. And neither of those explanations of something going wrong are true. Most, I mean, sometimes it is, right? Sometimes someone has really done something blameworthy and problematic and they should, they should, you know, own it and learn from it and resolve not to do that again. But far more often, uh, the things that go wrong are kind of complex and they're, they're a combination of factors that come together and our knee-jerk reaction to blame is not only unhelpful and painful, but it prevents us from learning what we what we can about the true events leading up to the failure, so that when we go forward, we're 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 wiser and and better off as a result. And also, you write about how so I, I think to avoid this, you need to appreciate systems to sort of undertake a broader view, step back. This is your words, not mine, and see how yeah. something can be part of a a bigger system rather than sort of something that we are personally or someone is, is personally to blame, blame for. Absolutely. That's, you know, the uh, seventh chapter of the book is about seeing systems and learning to appreciate systems because we naturally, and, and our education reinforces this. We naturally look at parts that we look at elements and we, we've been trained to kind of go very deep and, 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 and be very interested in the parts and, less aware of the relationships between the parts, but the behaviors of most systems and indeed the behaviors of most failures are caused by the relationships between parts more than the parts themselves. You know, if you, it's, it's rarely just some little bit is wholly responsible for the breakdown. There's usually the ways in which the different bits didn't fully align, or we didn't understand the ways they were going to relate to each other that will give rise to the to the failure. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how do you encourage people to sort of appreciate systems, which, again, your, your words, not mine? You know, I encourage, I encourage it through curiosity, right, through sort of inviting people to step back and take the broader look at that some goal or program or activity that they're involved in let's say you're you know you're you're creating a a new company you're in a startup or you're you're in a in a new project and we're so focused on oh let's make progress like we have deadlines we got to we got to just keep moving forward that we can often we would you know the old saying um go slow to go fast it's like we sometimes we're just moving so fast and we're so busy that we fail to take that little bit of time we needed to kind of step back and see what's really going on here and notice a better way, notice a better path. So the 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 simple doorway into systems thinking is to pause for a moment and say, who else and what else might be affected by this action or this decision? 
And then what might happen later as a result of doing this now? So systems thinking is kind of the discipline to, to move from me now to us and later, right? To have a larger view. Yeah, that was just a fascinating learning from the book about temporal discounting, this to move away from our temptation to think only in the now, as you mentioned just there. But as a result, we're very bad at doing things like making sure that our car is, you know, preventative, preventative medicine and, and all of that. You know, again, you encourage us to really try and move away from that mindset and to be better, I suppose, yes, at thinking of future failures and doing all we can now to avoid them. But we, you know, I think it's a human trait, certainly one I recognize the difficulty of, of caring about that until it's too late. Right. A temporal discounting refers to our natural tendency to value rewards and, and events that are happening right now more than what might happen later in the future. And so it's, it's the, it's what leads us to sort of have that second piece of chocolate cake, which just because it's delicious and not sort of pause to think, well, but you know, this might not be such a good idea uh, for, for health or whatever. So, but that's of course, just a trivial, a trivial example. It's very natural. I, I think we can almost describe wisdom and, you know, be, little children are of course, just perpetually right here, right now. They want, they want, they want what they want. And we, we try to help them. We try to help them learn and grow and learn patience and, and learn delayed gratification and learn to see others that others' needs are as valid and important as their own and to become a sort of part of a community um, with, with mutual respect and, and mutual valuing. And one could describe wisdom as just that sort of that slow process of developing um, as much, you know, more and more awareness that others' needs matter as much as your own, and that the future matters as much as the present. Right? That that we need to, we need to sometimes really pause and think carefully about whether this is the right thing to do right here, right now, even though it it feels like something that would be effective or fun uh, to do, and that's. No, that's a that's a never-ending learning journey, I think. And that's essentially changing our ways of thinking to avoid future failure. Yes, and it's often a team sport, right? It's if if you really if you're serious about, say, there's some policy you want to put into your company, or there's some activity you want to engage in, uh, you know, if you're if you're serious about thriving over the longer period. Most of the time, you really do need to get some other voices into the conversation. Right? If, it, if it's something really new and different and potentially important, you know, just take the time to sort of um, run it by some people. What do you think here? You know, get get some people from different backgrounds or different areas of expertise, because predicting the future is not you know not, not easy, not natural, um, but it's it's better done with with the inclusion of different perspectives. I'm going to take a question from the audience now and then come back to some of my own if if uh, if I have time. But Megan says, I teach at a primary school in year five and six, and there's such a sense of fear of failure from the children mm. that limits them in taking risks. What advice would you give to allow them to know that risk-taking and failure is a positive and failure mm. is something they should be comfortable with? Great question, Megan. Thank you. It is a great question. And, and you know, I wonder, Megan, whether this has become 
harder uh, for those kids and harder for people, you know, teachers like you over the past uh, decade or so, or whether it's always been been this way. But I think that it may be harder. I think what you're talking about may be harder as as those young uh, children are are so much more aware than certainly I was at their age of of people they're seeing online. You know, they're just exposed to a great deal more, and so they're they're potentially more anxious about about failure, about getting it wrong. I'm a huge fan of the work on growth mindset, and I think it can be. So I think there's two uh, two powerful factors or ways to to help. Uh, to help you help them, which is one, get yourself familiar with growth mindset and that that deep understanding developed by the researcher of Carol Dweck that the the children who understand their abilities as like muscles, right? Their 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 cognitive abilities, their athletic abilities, when they understand that those are abilities that get stronger and better with work, with practice, you know, with with failures. Versus the ones who think they have some kind of innate talent that's fixed, the fixed mindset, those kids, and they are the dominant, it's the dominant group, it's the dominant mindset, the fixed mindset, they are reluctant, like you're describing, to take any risks. And then they harm themselves. In other words, they, they by not taking risks, they are limiting their own potential um, for advancement, for growth, for wisdom, right? So it's it's about helping them and you appreciate that in fact, their capability is limitless to a certain extent, right? As long as they're willing uh, to stretch and to, to um, you know, um, have failures along the way, they'll actually be helping themselves get, you know, better and smarter all the time. Try to keep the, you know, the phones and the social media out of it so that we're not so we're not so in the in the perpetual now that gosh, I don't want to I don't want to have anything that's less than perfect today. Well, that just won't work, especially if you're, you know, a 10 year old or 11 year old child, you've got to be, you know, if you're not stretching and, and struggling and solving hard problems today, it's, that's going to be really a problem. You know, the other thing I would add is just help them see. And I think there's so many uh, biographies and, and articles in the, in the, in the media and elsewhere about how really effective people whether those in history, you know, like Thomas Edison just always comes to mind because he has this wonderful quote, I haven't failed, I found 10,000 ways that won't work, right? In the in the pursuit of the electric light bulb, for, for example. But help them see that the most successful people in every field have failed more, not less than the rest of us. Right? That's, what, that's what true achievement and true um, success looks like that willingness to fail along the way. Do you think we need to do something about the language? Because you know, we have such binary language, failure and success, and very True. little words that we use in between. Yeah, you, we can say it's it's um, it's a it's a um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a miss. Some things are a mishap. Other things are a disappointment. Other things are just a pure discovery. I didn't know that could happen, right? And and they're all they all fit under the umbrella category failure. Um, but I think I think you're right, Hannah. Like being, um, I, I don't want to encourage double speak or you know the kind of language that then reinforces the idea that it's sort of shameful. Like let's just talk about like it's we can talk about it. It's okay, right? It's it's okay to 
fail, like let's not think about fail as a word with a capital F, right? A word that, you know, I am a failure. No, I failed, right? I had a disappointment. I didn't do well on that test. I didn't win that running race. Um, Those are all in a sense, undesired negative results, but they're not shameful in any way. It couldn't have, I couldn't have failed to win that race if I hadn't, if I, unless I entered it. I mean, the easiest way to never fail is just to never do anything, but that creates a whole other risk, which is, you know, the risk of stagnation and, and never getting anywhere. Yeah. No, I, I remember somebody's bio, someone rather well known just describes himself as a work in progress, which is essentially ah. you know, what, what we all should be. That's right. And that's the growth mindset, really. It's a lovely way to put it. I'm a work in progress. Someone I worked for many years ago, Buckminster Fuller said, I seem to be a verb. Right? I'm not a noun, I'm a verb, you know, meaning the action, right? That it's sort of, it's an, it's, it's an never ending journey of doing and being and, and learning and hopefully growing. Well, Arnie says, not a question, but a quote. Nelson Mandela said, don't judge me by my successes, but how many times I fell and got up again. And so yeah, thank you. Right, and right. actually, yeah, we haven't mentioned uh, also complex failures. We've talked about intelligent ones, basic ones. Perhaps you could explain yep. complex failures, what they are, where we should look for them and avoid them. Complex failures are on the rise. <laughs> they happen because of the complexity of our systems and our lives and um, and they are defined as uh, failures caused by multiple factors, any one of which on its own would not have caused a failure. But the the, the perfect storm, the way they all came together led to a failure. Um, so many failures, sort of classic failures, fit the bill. In the UK, uh, many, many, many years ago, the Torrey Canyon, which was an oil spill, uh, in 1967, 13 gallons of 13, 13 million gallons of crude oil spilled off the Isle of Scilly, right? And that was a complex failure. It was about eight different small, you know, unimportant small factors that came together in just the wrong way and led the ship to collide with the rocks and and have this catastrophic uh, accident. So um, the the NASA shuttle failures that I've studied in depth, um, both of them, Columbia and Challenger, are complex failures. It's just many little things that line up in just the wrong way. Many adverse drug events in hospital care are complex failures. Again, nobody made one big giant mistake that led to the failure. It's that a few things were just slightly off in ways that ordinarily you would have gotten away with it, but because of them all coming together at the wrong time, in the wrong way, we get to a failure. So undesired, sometimes again, sometimes very small and sometimes uh, very large. And and how do people who aren't in those sorts of s- scenarios, because the ones that you describe, as you've just mentioned then, and the many others in the book, are, are quite specific to large organizations or as you know you talk, talk about national yeah. ships but what, what about people listening who are that, that's far removed from their everyday life but what do they learn from a complex failures yeah i mean there are complex failures in your life you know you forget to charge your cell phone and you 
Um, you know, you leave the house a little late and then the phone dies and there's more traffic than you expected. Any one of those things on their own wouldn't have led you to be kind of catastrophically late for some meeting that really mattered in your work or personal life. Um, and then that led to, you know, not, you know, you know, something bad happening that that could have been avoided. And we've all, let's say you missed the flight, you know, and, and we've all, we've all had, again, not catastrophic, but, but, um, Let's say let's say it's something that in your life or in your work is is deeply undesired, and you absolutely know. But it wasn't just one thing; it was just these many little things. Now, could you have avoided it? Yes, of course you could. And the way you avoid them is by 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 vigilance and mindfulness, right? But and and speaking up again. Many complex failures. I think both the smaller and the larger could have been avoided had someone spoken up in a timely way to just alter even sometimes altering even one of those factors would have prevented the failure it's so it's um it's almost like sometimes we're just doing too much and we're too busy and we're not we're doing some of it in our sleep if you will and and if, if we can just take a deep breath and say what do i you know be present thinking about what do I really need to do and where do I need to be and then do those things as as well as we can. That will prevent uh, many, many complex failures. But if you're in an organization where complex failures are possible, then your main contribution and your main reason for understanding this phenomenon is because you might be the person who spoke up, you know, at just the right time and in a way that ends up preventing something bad from happening it strikes me a lot of a lot of modern day society digital doing everything you know fast social media as we've discussed obviously a lot of negatives but i wonder you know, can it be used as a force for good when it comes to failing and to learning from failure are there sort of parts of our digital world that can really help well i think when people share their experiences honestly and more widely than if, you know, in, in um, maybe in another era, we could have only shared them with people we knew face to face and people on our team or in our family or in our community. Whereas social media, sometimes we're, we're reading the stories of people who uh, live on the other side of the world whom we would have never met and gaining some insight, some secondhand knowledge, some secondhand learning from them. So, so I think that is the potential upside. And do you think the pandemic has influenced um, for for good or for, for, for worse, for better or for worse, our ability to maybe accept failure? I mean, how has that influenced things? There's no doubt mm. it has. The work culture's changed considerably since then. I wonder what you've noticed that has changed in terms of the culture of failure. Mm. Well, there's probably some, I mean, I know there are some... Um, some wonderful benefits uh, that have come from the discovery, for for example, the discovery that we could, or many of us, um, almost overnight, learn how to do things we did not know how to do before, like teach our classes over over Zoom or what have you. So that learning about that agility and flexibility and and opportunity to learn new skills and do things really differently, things that we thought were not doable in a different way. That I think has been an enormous um, opportunity, um, you know, to, to, to celebrate the possibility of doing 
things in new ways. That that's been that's been a plus, and it's been a kind of wide uh, set of distributed experiments that are that are changing how we work, and and some of that in positive ways. At the same time, one of the aftermaths of COVID is that the the bonds of our relationships that really are nurtured in when we're really in meaningful contact with each other have been harmed a little and in some cases severed by lack of lack of sort of meaningful honest conversation uh, together of of the kind that um proximity really helps and and nurtures our or just our sense of being connected to each other, of true caring about each other, is a little bit under attack when we're always working virtually or, or at a distance. Yeah, really interesting. We just end off with um, so uh, another audience question. Just wondering, and we've sort of touched on this, but what's the best way if you are a leader or even a parent or in this scenario to encourage people after a failure to not judge to to what's the best way to speak to someone in that in that scenario um with empathy with curiosity and with a forward-looking lens so i think one of the the best question the question to ask any group and maybe any individual is what happened right just let's let's dig into what happened as if it were a story right as if it were a narrative rather than a you know, it's not a judgment. It's a, it's a, we want to describe as best we can what happened uh, so that we can, you can learn, I can learn, and we can together think about what next. Right? So it's, it's, it's all about having the empathy to know, well, this is probably not fun uh, for you in this moment, but let's dig into what happened and then let's look forward together. And is that the same way in which you should speak to yourself to prevent uh, yes. yourself from beating yes. beating yourself up after a failure? Yes, absolutely. You know, in in uh, in chapter five of of right kind of wrong, I talk about um, a little model that I use that I find very powerful, which is stop, challenge, choose. And you know, we have a tendency, or at least I do, to to catastrophize, right? So something, you know, I missed a meeting. <gasps> it's the end of the world. It's not. Right? Just pause, breathe you know, stop, challenge your initial race up the ladder to, you know, this is terrible. No, it's not terrible. It's inconvenient, disappointing, right? And give yourself better language to confront the shortcoming in a productive way, again, to learn and grow and, and prevent the same kind of thing happening. But but putting, we often refer to this as putting it into perspective, um, but I think sometimes that's very clinical language. It's just challenge your initial thinking and choose a healthier, more productive, more learning-oriented response instead. So just to end, we've had that lovely quote, um, thanks to Arnie, but you have so many brilliant quotes in your book. I wonder if you might be able to just end with perhaps your favorite, or you can choose two if you, if you like. Okay. Um, it's, it's peppered with so many uh, quotes, which are, so, which are very inspirational and so instructive. So maybe I'll start with Winston Churchill. Success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And I think that's right, right, in any field of endeavor. Um, but, but let me end with Louisa May Alcott, the, the um, 19th century novelist, who says, 
I am not afraid of storms, for I'm learning how to sail my ship. I think the future for all of us is full of storms, you know, literal and metaphorical. And we must help ourselves not be afraid of them, but learn to navigate them. And this is something we can and must do together. There will be failures, but let's sail our ships as best we can through these storms. Very good place to end, particularly with uh, Rhys May Olcott. I highly approve. Um, so thank you very much to everyone for signing in. And Amy, thank you hugely uh, for giving us your time. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This episode starred Amy Edmondson and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producer was Sam Olgranti, and I make the show with Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing to HowTo Plus, where you can not only get access to our whole live stream program for free, you can also listen to our exclusive members-only podcast channel and hear everything weeks or even months ahead of the public release. You can also gift HowTo Plus membership to friends and loved ones this Christmas. Find out more on our website. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>